0: I'm Aaron Armstrong.
1: I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Would like to know if you wouldn't mind if maybe we took Beth out sometime.
0: I figured you're either going to do that or the
1: $2. $2. $2. This is an eminently quotable movie for like, especially for a mid 80s comedy when most of the most of those movies were like, hey, who, who can we sexually assault this week?
0: Uh, Yeah. What what are we talking about, though? We left to watch a movie podcast. Pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around the theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast it's going to be easy to do. This month, because we're specifically trying to compare a couple sets of movies, so we're doing. I don't know. If- Did we come up with a name for this one? Uh, a pair I- of yeah. <laughs> Q sacks. Yeah. Q two Q sacks. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are doing uh, a few movies featuring uh, one of my favorite actors of all time, John Cusack. Uh, and I I don't know how you feel about him. I I've been pushing this month, but he's a Chicago boy. Uh. I imagine you have fondness. I'm looking forward to hearing, kind of, Peter, your history with John Cusack as a whole. But this idea kind of came to me when I actually, uh, about a year ago, bought the Blu-ray and rewatch Better Off Dead for the first time since I was in high school, maybe. I'd watched it a few times in high school. I'll, I'll kind of get to my history with this movie and John Cusack later. But I was as I was watching it, I was like, man, this really – feels like a piece with Gross Point Blank. Now, I know like Gross Point Blank like has a quote unquote unofficial sequel in War Inc., War Inc. is not a good movie. And while that is about a hitman, a Love Lorn Hitman played by John Cusack, even though it's a different character, thematically this reminded me in a way that it didn't when I first saw it so much of Gross Point Blank. It was, you know, almost as if the character here ended up leaving and becoming Martin Blank in, in that movie because both of them are kind of cynical, non-emotional love stories at, at like its core with a very bleak, dark sense of humor. And I was like, man, I would love to find an excuse to do do these two movies. And then I'd always had high fidelity on the list of a movie that I was obsessed with in high school and college. And kind of separated myself a little bit from for a while when I, you know, I related to to John Cusack's character in High Fidelity. And at some point you kind of realize, oh, he's not someone to aspire to. He's an asshole. He's an asshole that has some redemption uh, later on at the end of the movie, but a very, like, uh, non-dramatic redemption at the end of the movie. Um, and that High Fidelity has always kind of been – Related to this could be a version of Lloyd Dobler when he grows up and after he realizes that his uh, love at first sight, soulmate that he meets and say anything. It's, it's a passionate love affair that flames out very quickly and he's still constantly looking for the next love of his life. That it felt almost like a thematic sequel. So the, all those ideas was like we should just do that. We should do Better Off Dead and Gross Point Blank, two movies that I adore. And then Do Say Anything in High Fidelity, which is, again, I think similar themes and similar tonally. One, both our first two movies or our first set of movies from the perception of a high school kid. And then the the other two movies, kind of that same tonal story from the perception of a tw- you know late 20s, early 30s something. Uh, who's been through the ringer a little bit more uh, in – In life uh, than than he was in high school. So that was kind of the idea. It's really not more complicated than that. There's a ton of John Cusack movies I love that we're not going to talk about. It's not meant to be comprehensive. I'm really excited to talk about this month just because I like when I was a aspiring film nerd in high school and started obsessively renting movies. I tended, like, a lot of aspiring cinephiles, Peter, to, like, find my directors, right? So I was, like, trying to watch all the James Cameron and David Fincher and, like, these directors that I was getting obsessed with, uh, their visual style and how good consistently their movies were. And I wasn't necessarily the same way with actors with a few exceptions where I felt like just their presence in a movie was enough to, regardless of how good the movie was – uh, and they were in a lot of good movies in a lot of cases. It was such a great performance that I would also look out these actors. And those actors were Edward Norton, which is, a, again, a pretty standard over-the-plate uh, response. Well, especially during
1: that era, he was yeah. almost only working with, like, top-shelf directors and, and, and doing Amazing projects. performances.
0: Um yeah. Bill Murray, just because he was like – regardless of how bad the movie was, I always found it. He was he was funny in it and he was in, obviously in a lot of very funny movies. Um, Kevin Spacey, which the less said the better at this point. But he was one of those people that was like he is doing good performances. This is like pre-pay it forward and uh, being a known rapist uh, era. But uh, – and then it was, it was John Cusack and that love of John Cusack started by seeing – Gross Point Blank, which we'll talk about more next week. But, like, his style of acting, the kind of way that he underplayed all the emotion and these amazing del- line deliveries. I was – I rented it on a whim because it had, like, one of those, like, on so many top ten lists and, you know, two thumbs way up or whatever. And it had, like, a, a flashy video cassette and I rented it on a whim and I became obsessed. Like, it was the first John Cusack movie I saw and I went back and tried to – you know, that's when I rented – um, Say anything. uh, A lot of other movies from that you know that John Cusack had made, and then right about that time too that I was like falling in love with him. You have being John Malkovich, which comes out in nineteen ninety nine, and High Fidelity, which comes out in two thousand. I'm in high school for for both of those movies, so from my perspective, this guy had made some amazing, great movies in the eighties. Was still making like hit after hit. This is right before his rom com era, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point this month, where all of a sudden he became like an A list in the shittiest rom-coms you've ever seen for a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was kind of an air 80s and 90s. He was just doing like amazing movies and his acting was so different from anyone else I had seen. He had like this natural charisma that I think you gravitated with. That you wanted to be best friends with this person. He was funny. He was smart. He was articulate. And he just had like a certain like natural charm that never made it seem like he was acting. That he was just a genuine human being, which when we talk about say anything, that's going to be a big part because like yeah. his role in say anything, you feel the passion and the you know you feel everything that Lloyd Dobler is feeling in that movie, and the movie doesn't work without that. And I, I to this day I still think he's very unique in in kind of being able to evoke that feeling with just like the look of his puppy dog eyes or anything else that's going on. This was a movie that Better Off Dead, which we're going to talk about today, which was uh, one that was very hard for me to watch. For some reason, it wasn't at any like rental store anywhere in the 90s. And I finally found a like a copy at like some, you know, Suncoast show, uh, not it's Suncoast. Yeah. Like a $20 VHS of this. And I was like, I had read the quotes on IMDb. You mentioned it's a quotable movie. I'd went through like quotes and I'm like, this movie sounds amazing. And I went and rented it and I was like. It is amazing. It's it's such a perfect kind of start to kind of his like for the most part, um, his his movie stardom or his lead his lead role stardom. Uh, But it wasn't until I rewatched it again. Uh, I never had it on DVD. It was one of those movies that was weirdly released. And it wasn't until I watched it again recently that I'm like, oh, man, this is – I can't believe I didn't connect the dots back then. But this feels very tonally of a piece with gross point blank. Yeah. So, yeah, what's your history with this movie and John Cusack in general?
1: I think you cued it up well. Um, I – the first – both of the – actually, all the first John Cusack movies I would have seen would have been through my brother because my older brother, Charlie, like – was very attached to this movie say anything um and high fidelity um and he uh he he pushed all those movies on me when i was in like junior high which it probably made some um wh- far worse horrible damage than showing me like evil dead and, uh <laughs> but uh because I, I definitely well, yeah watched...
0: were you mis- were you miserable because you watched john cusack movies or were you watching john <laughs> cusack movies because you were miserable
1: I definitely watched High Fidelity and thought that that was a character type to emulate. Yeah. Oh, um, agree. Regardless of how sad he is, he still gets to sleep with Catherine Zeta-Jones. And uh, he's funny. Like, you... He is funny. He's and he's like,
0: smart. He, he always has a line for... It. That's, like, consistent with all of his movies. Like, he is, for, like, an 80s... For a 90s kid... Like, when when I think of, like, who I immediately wanted to emulate and be like like... There's probably a, like, straight line from, like, Zach Morris when I was in elementary school to John Cusack characters when I was in high school because he felt sensitive and smart and funny and all these things. It's like, this is who I see myself as or he want to see a, myself
2: as.
1: He found a way to make, like, um, unpretentious, like, raw, uh, sort of sad hangdog personality types into something that <clears throat> cool yeah which is like very hard i think yeah because we're especially like he was sort of a hero to the like post gen x kind of hangover which is like uh caring about things is for fucking losers yeah talking about your feelings is for fucking losers like um you need to be cool you need to be detached you need to basically internalize a version of uh how your dad treated you yeah (laughs) and you need to externalize that after that um and uh that was like something that was like a part of the gen x legacy that like i think a lot of millennials also were shaking off like wait actually like i do need to find ways to to express who i am um even if it's corny um which is why a lot of people find zoomer so corny is because i think they've mostly shaken off the like detachment is cool thing um but he found a way to make that sort of like um numb post-pain kind of sadness like kind of cool and he has this hangdog kind of face yeah but when he smiles it's actually really charming he's handsome but in a way that like he looks like a guy you know like he yeah. he has an approachable handsomeness he doesn't have that bradley cooper thing where it looks like he was made in a lab to be hot yeah. um like per like it feels like bradley cooper had surgery at some point <laughs> to make his face more symmetrical yeah
0: um yeah, I mean he's got he's got skinny arms. He doesn't have that pronounced of a chin. Like he is his jaw. His, he sort of has
1: a, he has a mild jowls that have yeah. grown over the years yeah. a little bit.
0: Yeah, he. I mean he has kind of dead eyes a little bit. Yeah, like puppy dog dead. Like yeah,
1: just sort um, of like you sort of like oh i guess i'm getting hit. i guess i'm getting the shoe again that kind of face uh,
0: yeah a little bit that's why like we'll talk about this later on it, it it is so funny that like after playing these kind of too cool to be a romantic lead in a movie character that after two decades of that like hollywood is like wait a second what if we make try to make him like our go-to romantic lead like a you know Um, at the time like a mel gibson or later on a bradley cooper or matthew mcconaughey and it was like very odd that was a very odd transition for a lot of us that had grown up with his movies and just been like oh like he should not be the person who is in love with julia roberts or kate beckinsale because they magically in fate met in an elevator he should be the person who is like doesn't even get out of bed to go to the elevator that day because someone broke up with him two years ago, and like he's <laughs> gonna listen to fucking The Smiths or something like that. Like it, it was he he had so consi- not not that he didn't like branch out from that. Like he's great in um, Eight Men Out, and he's great in being John Malkovich, and obviously he's playing. You know, there's other examples of that where he's not quite doing the this character but i do think like this type of character that we're going to talk about for four movies and the variation of that is what people think of when they think of john cusack like he's great in being john Mal- malkovich no one thinks of john cusack as the the nerd in a ponytail in a you know thinning hair ponytail who's like you know working in a crazy office no one thinks of him as like a historical character actor no one even thinks of him i think anymore really as like the you know, secondary <laughs> character in these other coming-of-age movies like Stand By Me or uh, Sixteen Candles, I believe he's in. Or per, yeah, six, he, 16, plays
1: th- a, he plays a nerd in Sixteen Candles, which yeah. plays a role into the fight to get this movie made.
0: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I do think, like, the, the typical John Cusack character is really what we're going to be covering in different variations on that. Even as he's kind of become uh, an actor who is basically not in good movies anymore, (laughs) has kind of receded from, you know, he's in his. He's actually like. He's only 56, which is like he's been such, you know, someone who's been. He was older
1: brother age. He was not um, dad age. No. Yeah. This wasn't like me. This wasn't like me emulating. This wasn't me thinking Kurt Russell was the coolest guy in the world when I was in junior high. This is
0: this is yeah. a different this is a different thing. This was this is older brother energy. Well, that's what's so funny. It's like I mean, think about it. Like we're in our fifth decade of like John Cusack content. Eighties, <laughs> nineties, two thousands, two thousand tens, two thousand twenty. So you're like, oh, he must be in his like late sixties, and he's like fifty six. Like yeah. you know, he. I I do hope, and I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout the month. Like I do hope that he has some kind of comeback. Like, I think we'll eventually get, maybe as like a postscript to High Fidelity, about how kind of after that movie, his career while he was in bigger Hollywood hits, they just didn't have that same, like, credibility that I think he had mostly associated himself with. And he seemed to be just starring in whatever was available to him. Big Hollywood stuff that I think ultimately kind of burned out most of his creative energies because he was very creatively involved in the movies of like not this movie specifically but later on like you know he's a co-writer and in high fidelity and gross point blank and a producer and like you know and um pushing tan and a few of those other ones too from that era so
1: uh yeah yeah And, and the interesting thing about kind of matching okay so like yeah obviously right up front he has he has tweeted some stupid shit. Yeah. He did accidentally tweet an anti-Semitic cartoon um in defense of Palestine um which I, which, he, uh, which
0: he apologized for. Like
1: he apologized for and he said and then I think that was he part quit of Twitter him, like, for a couple years. Yeah,
0: yeah. he's and, like sorry. I I I'm, I'm not doing the I think he said something along the lines of like I'm not doing the kind of vet, like I'm tweeting from anger and emotion. I'm not doing the kind of vetting like appropriate to a public figure that so many people are following
1: yeah absolutely and and now he's kind of um though he like he made Chirac uh, a few years ago which I didn't like but at least it's a Spike Lee movie right like we can move on from that <laughs> it's not a great movie but um and he made Love and Mercy you know um he did Maps to the Stars which he made Maps to the Stars is, I, I love Maps to the Stars other than that yeah Maps to the Stars is a good movie um and then you got um Grand Piano which is good straight thriller yeah. kind of a forgotten straight thriller. Other than that, it's kind of just wall-to-wall, bad DTV, or, you know, low-theater-release action movies.
0: Yeah, Um, it's weird
1: that they're like... Because that's what he can get made, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, which, which, which does suck. It is weird that, like, Con Air is such a weird movie for him in the 90s. And I love Con Air, so I have no complaints about him being in it. But it's it's weird he's that he's good in it.
1: I like him as the I like him as the the agent that like yeah.
0: speaks criminal basically. Yeah, I mean, I like him in Con Air, but it is weird that the last ten years have basically been like, yeah, just be your character from Con Air.
1: I think that there's probably a pretty tough. You probably have a pretty tough time in Hollywood finding outlets for. Um, your politics if you are left of center (laughs) yeah um and for a few years he tried to find a few like war inc and whatever that were clearly like anti-bush movies but like none of those movies were particularly good and they didn't do well I you know if we had one in there that was like good and didn't do well we could maybe make an argument but people not wanting to see a bad movie doesn't really prove anything I'm just curious if if John Cusack's politics like maybe he, his ability to find ways to express his um his very public uh his p- very public politics which probably largely align with our podcast I would personally never tweet out an anti-Semitic cartoon but that's just my um basic media literacy of a child um but i i'm not canceling him i'm saying i think he should i think he
0: should continue to work um i think part is- i do think part of it is like he doesn't like leaving like he's kind of he kind of has become from what i understand a little bit of a recluse like it's funny i saw an interview with him where they did a like and this is like pre-covid like he was very pleasant like he's not like a recluse in the sense that like He's like Harrison Ford and goes on talk shows and is a huge grump. Like, he doesn't want to be there. He's very pleasant and affable. He's like – it's like talking to John Cusack in one of his movies, you know. But he, like, does them from his apartment. He's mentioned that he doesn't want to leave Chicago to make movies anymore. That he's like, I'm not going to travel. I don't – I have enough money. The things I really want to get made are not mostly getting made anymore. Like, if there's something that he's really excited about, like a love and mercy, it seems like he'll go and – figure it out and and figure it out but like generally he Stay just seems Santa to be like for yeah a few weeks i don't want to miss a cubs game <laughs> like yeah yeah i'm good yeah no
1: he is and yeah that is he is a chicago figure um and uh it is kind of funny just like yeah, i have friends that have seen him at cubs games and shit like that like he's he's yeah he's not that kind of recluse right or people have seen him at bars like he's not he's not he's not that
0: that variety he's not anti-social
1: no um it's just that i think that also like i think we should celebrate when celebrities are like
0: sure yeah i
1: i I've, I've got the money that i need i own my home my relationships are my relationships uh you don't have any access to them and yeah. uh i want to make movies in chicago let's let's do that
0: um let's talk before we get into the movie let's talk about the director of better off dad because uh-huh. what a weird story Savage this guy
2: Steve. has.
0: Yeah, so this guy, Sa- Savage Steve Holland, he made Better Off Dead, which was a, a a mild hit. He made a movie that I watched for the first time last night, uh, One Crazy Summer, which was always on my Cusack catch-up list. And then he did not make another movie for like 5th till 2008. Yeah. And he exclusively makes weird Fox Kids, Disney Channel, and Nickelodeon. Uh, that's the true. He made a movie called How Out to Get into College with um, An- Anthony Edwards that is unfindable. Like, not in streaming. I don't think it was ever released on DVD, let alone maybe, like, VHSs are hard to find. That was in 1989. And then he disappeared from the face of the earth and then reemerged. To do some very bizarre movies that, like, he did the straight to video Legally Blonde sequel called Legally Blondes. He did a movie that I, I kind of want to see. I think it's called A Fairly Odd Christmas. A fairly, yeah, Fairly Odd Christmas that like has, has, like, Fairly Odd Parents? it's a live action version that has five stars all over letterbox is the craziest thing people have ever seen so i added it to my Chris <laughs> or and there's also or maybe it's one called santa helpers that that's where i was looking but yeah like sub not even the straight to video or the straight to disney stuff you've ever heard of it's like subpar for that and it's all like very g rated things it's a it's a oh santa hunters is the one that's supposed to be insane
1: was that a straight to nickelodeon thing
0: yeah, only on Nickelodeon. Yeah, I mean, there's a kid with an axe hiding by the chimney, like, and every every review on Letterbox is five stars. Like, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely watching that next year. Uh, but yeah, a very bizarre car- uh, career, like. Uh, one Crazy Summer and Better Off Dead were fine from a financial perspective. Obviously, I, How to Get into College wasn't. John Cusack coming off his first leading role in The Sure Thing, which is a movie – Have you, I, for, I think we talked about this. You haven't seen The Sure Thing, right? It's very no, hard to watch right now. Yeah. I don't – like it's out so, of it's print. It's an off. early Rob Reiner movie. It's, yeah. Uh, it's really good. The Sure Thing is fantastic um, It uh, and got great reviews at the time um, and really kind of, I think, solidifies that John Cusack – persona but it's impossible to watch the dvd is out of print it's not a streaming the blu rays out of print i have a dvd copy somewhere um that, that was, was big... one i was
1: intending on watching before we recorded this because uh the story is that the studio heads didn't want john cusack for this movie yeah uh, because they just seen him at playing like a nerd i believe he has a large like outside of his mouth retainer
0: in that movie in the sure
1: thing in sixteen candles. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, I have seen sixteen candles. Okay. Um, I I actually haven't. Uh, it's a good movie, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I generally I, like. John I know.
0: I know the racist parts and the underwear part because it was on every. I love the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I, I generally like John Hughes movies. I probably like. I, I yeah,
0: I like John Hughes movies. I just never. I never saw it.
1: Yeah. Um, but it might be a Pretty in Pink thing where I watch it as an adult, and I'm like, ooh,
0: no thanks. I mean, I saw um, The Breakfast Club for the first time in college, and I didn't care for it, so... I feel I, I like feel Breakfast like, Club now, actually. Like, I feel like it's... I only saw it the like, one time.
1: It's a bit more clever than I think people give it credit for. But anyways. Oh, but uh, the sure thing uh, was... Kind of, I think, like, it either had not come out or had come out in a limited capacity by the time they were in production on Better Off Dead. Uh, it came um, out because, the year
0: before, so that's that's likely that it hadn't come out yet.
1: Yeah, so Savage, Savage Steve uh, Holland had seen it in some capacity and had told uh, studio heads, like, hey... Like, either in theaters or in preview or something, because, you know, he's in the studio system now. It basically told them, like, hey, uh, you got to check out John Cusack. He's amazing in the sure thing. Like, he's just, you know, you can't take your eyes off him. And they were just thinking about him as, like, the retainer-wearing nerd in 16 16 Candles. Yeah. And uh, he said, like, yeah, that was part of the fight to get the movie made was, like, that... (laughs) He was, like, I was so in on John Cusack. And, like, he's still so in on him because he made the movie... uh, the movie One Crazy Summer, pretty much immediately following. Yeah. But do you know With so
0: much of the same cast and essentially the same plot. Like, I'll talk about that in a second. But, like, from a template, it's like the exact same template with a little bit of the surrealness toned down, but it's literally like, instead of a ski race, there's a boat race. Instead of, uh, there's a girl that he likes, but then there's a blonde girl that he ends up dating, and the 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 brunette girl is kind of like it's fine like i they, they don't become real romantic coupling until later in the movie and like uh it has almost all of the same um actors like kurt Armstrong's in it uh one crazy summer adds john favreau which is um not john favreau um um love it uh jeremy piven sorry jeremy piven yeah <laughs> i don't know we were close
1: most. You were close. Those so, were close somehow somehow
0: those two crossed in my head for a second. Uh, One Crazy Summer has Jeremy Piven, but it has like Curtis and Bobcat Goldwiss. It's like adding more weirdness, but like the beats of that movie is like fucking, it's, it's fine. It's a good movie, but it's like, let's just remake One Crazy Summer.
1: It is pretty funny to have... Or sorry, uh, let's
0: remake Better Off Dead on this different template. It
1: is It is pretty funny to have Bobcat Goldwaite in there because Bobcat's Goldwiss is kind of the alt reality version of curtis armstrong right
0: i know yeah i'm surprised the universe didn't <laughs> implode um they were <laughs> or same, just make them become one they were in the same s- movie yeah one ass. crazy summer is worth your time but it's also like a watch once and if you need to watch that movie you watch better better off dead. yeah so let's talk
1: a little bit about how this movie got made yeah fairly typical story at the beginning um savage steve armstrong was a guy who moved to la made a bunch of short movies producers like the short movies and in the way that the system is supposed to work you work your way up from a five minute short to an eight minute short to a 20 minute short and then they're like all right here's your here's your 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 um modestly budgeted um intro movie we're gonna give you a full budget you're gonna have access to you know you're gonna have access to some money to play around with but part of the story is that henry winkler had a lot of sway at paramount at the time (laughs) and henry winkler was like get this kid in office like i want him to write i want him to go write his like his full-length script um (laughs) so like henry winkler apparently was like throwing throwing his dick around a little bit in the the early 80s to get better off dead made hey hey. crazy hey um and, and um what's also funny unrelated um is that um uh, Clint Howard was going to be in this movie as yeah. the the uh, Cliff Ar- or the Curtis Armstrong, Armstrong role. Um, so there was going to be multiple sort of like you know Happy Days Happy Days related people <laughs> related in this movie. Um, but no, we we ended up with the version we got, and uh, for all for, for all stories, it seems like. Um, behind the scenes it was kind of a mess to get it made because like it wasn't testing well at first. Yeah. Cut some of the surreality to get it down to shape.
0: I mean the reviews weren't were very mixed at the time. Like this movie has a huge following now. But they were mixed, and I do think this the, the hyper reality, the surreality is a big part of that. He toned that down a lot in One Crazy Summer, and even though that movie also had mixed reviews, some of like the contemporary reviews are like Paints a clearer picture and is better made with less like jumps into the fantastical than better. Like, a clear like the reviews at the time of One Crazy Summer, which is so funny because it's kind of been a little more forgotten where Better Off Dead has kind of retained its cult status. Um, but there were a lot some of the contemporary reviews of One Crazy Summer were literally, literally like an obvious improvement from Better Off Dead, but still not great because. <laughs> This movie was exactly the type of movie I loved finding. We talked about this with Repo Man, where, like, it's technically a somewhat grounded story based in the real world with all of these surreal touches that no one really comments on. And doesn't necessarily, in Repo Man until, like, the very end, drive the plot away from – like, it's not a, a adventure into full-on fantastical – but it's like a you know twisted confused uh, excuse the the DC Joker reference a twisted like version of our reality and then a story that plays out there in a way that the none of the characters comment on and that was something that's something i always like in movies cuz i like the idea of again a kitchen sink approach or maximalism but also delivered in a very moon, mundane uh way that the characters themselves are not like holy shit there's a great moment in this movie where um, literally uh, the neighbor ingests gasoline and Mm -hmm. drinks it and then lights a cigarette and their window explodes and it cuts hard cuts to a scene of John Cusack saying sorry your mom exploded (laughs) like and but it's not a Looney Tunes it's not a Mel Brooks movie like we see the mom later on with a bandage on her mouth. Like it's not that exploding isn't a bad thing with no consequences. It just isn't so outside of the realm that it it it's, it's like it's hard to understand. Like I think Buckaroo uh, Banzai across the 8th dimension mentions like the 80s were really doing these funny surreal hyper reality type comedies that I feel like only existed in this era like i i don't know like i i feel like later on you only had like pure mel brooks parody like the world is wacky and people are wacky and like this is a really grounded story surrounded by complete insanity that doesn't derail the groundedness of the story
1: yeah and it it does kind of lose the the um it is is kind of messy in in a way where where it doesn't have the plausible deniability where like certain sequences is just Lane being in his kind of crazy uh, manic head.
0: Um, yeah, because I mean, some of those are explicit, right? Like he some talks of the stuff is to...
1: actually happening.
0: <laughs> some of the stuff's actually happening, but some of it is like he it is happening in his head, like we know for a fact,
1: like the burger the burger dance thing with uh, everybody wants some. Or ta- or talking
0: to the paper. And then he's talking like the screaming paper. at the piece of paper that he drew a cartoon on and everyone's looking at him like he's a weirdo.
1: That stuff is obviously fantasy, but like, um, you know, like yeah, the the, the mom Ricky's mom blowing up is fake. Um or so it's real. It's like she yeah, actually co- was cooking a, a squid.
0: Face. Yeah. Or the the weird slime creature that crawls off the plate. Like those are all actually happening to some um, the
1: brother, uh, building a, uh, all, everything the brother, everything does the brother does is in some way real. Yeah. Um, at least the blowing up the, um, the house with a, launching a rocket at the end. Yeah. Um, the,
0: the pa- I mean, all the
1: paperboy stuff is real. Yeah. I mean, the, like, yeah. And, and like, but that, that's the thing is like, you're, you're right. It's like this kind of like grounded, zany, grounded yet zany movie didn't exist really where it's like, you're not. They're, it's not Wet Hot, where, like, the romantic relationships are don't a matter. joke vector. Yeah. They don't matter. Actually, if you get too invested in Katie and Coop, like, the ending is pretty sad to Wet Hot. Um, yeah.
0: I think maybe would, the so there's some Woody Allen movies. At the movies. end of the movie,
1: they want you to do... They want you to have the yeah. rom-com awe. Yeah. ...moment. I, and um, the movie, oddly enough, I think, like, kind of loses its sense of balance towards the end. When, like, it never really had a sense of balance to begin with. (laughs) And I'm not saying that as an insult. Yeah, I I think think it's not as zany, I don't think.
0: I don't know. There's the ski pole fight. There's the kid chasing down on the bike with the skis. There's, there's, I think there is enough zaniness near the end. It's not as random. It is getting to a specific plot. But even that plot is kind of, while the characters are all taking it very seriously, is silly and zany. I think the only thing that comes close like pre these types of movies in the 80s was like the the movies that Woody Allen was making in the late 60s and early 70s like bananas bananas or take the money and run or some of those other ones were like love and death. Um mm-hmm. I still think those hit a little more into the like straight comedy but you know there is even in Annie Hall there's a lot of like Zaniness within a grounded love story that is supposed to be somewhat have you know happening between Diane Keaton and and Woody Allen.
1: Though, it, it, you're you're right. Woody uh, uh, Annie Hall is not as sober as some of his like later movies, particularly like you know you get to the '90s and it's he's kind of sobered away from anything kind of parodical, right? Um, but uh, or late '90s more so. Um,
0: well, even like I mean stuff like Hannah and, the, and her sisters and like I mean that's just essentially like drama with some character comedy stuff
1: yeah it's drama it's drama where the characters can be a little bit ridiculous and you can laugh at them at times right
0: which is no different
1: than like glass onion
2: right
1: yeah yeah in a lot of those woody allen movies you could escape just being like this was in woody allen's head this is just a weird little character quirk that you know that this character had in this you can never quite find your bearings which I particularly love but I can see why an audience would be like wait is this an airplane thing or is this not an airplane thing am I supposed to care about this at all and like I feel like it's pretty telling to me early on in Lane's first suicide attempt which is uh, Lane is in the garage and this is a movie about a bunch of suicide attempts in a
0: row yeah we'll (laughs) we'll talk about that
1: (laughs) yeah we'll get there um lane's first suicide attempt uh is like basically his mom's vacuuming and knocks him off of his suicide perch right as he changed his mind he's like actually i don't want to do this and the movie cuts away before you see if he got back on his feet the movie just cuts away and it's like well yeah of course he lived the movie's about him not killing himself
0: yeah let's let's talk about that really quick because Obviously, like I, I feel like one something in the eighties that happened more often is the idea of like this is a movie that jokes a lot about suicide. And I think obviously suicide isn't in real life, outside of a comedy movie that's focused on that. It's not something to joke about. But I I actually am not trying to defend this movie from the concept of like it was of its time or something like that. That's a shitty defense under any circumstances. I'm not trying to do it here. What I do think this movie captures well in a way that obviously if you're triggered by suicidal components, I would recommend like any movie that features suicide. Definitely don't watch this one. It doesn't treat it with, with seriousness. Um, and if that's a trigger to you, the idea of like joking about suicide, it doesn't necessarily make a joke about the concept of suicide. What I do think it is doing well and why I think it it like still works in the year of our Lord, 2023, is I think it is evoking something very specific of what it feels like to have a bad breakup in high school. A breakup in high school – obviously, breakups at any point in your life can um, um, can have a devastating effect on you. Divorces later in life, stuff like that. But I do think, like, this movie is specifically about that feeling of – I have had a short enough life that I don't know that I'll have other relationships. This was my, you know, he he really actually explains it for a comedy movie that makes a joke. But he explains it kind of beautifully at one point that he said, you know, he says that he had started envisioning his life with her. And it was the only time he'd ever been in love before. And he couldn't imagine what his life was like without her. And so all those different times that he kind of, would try to put his best foot forward and still run into the same walls or run into her. That feeling of like, what is my life without this person at an age where you're especially vulnerable to that. Now it takes that and it makes it evoking some comedic thoughts to the dramaticness of it, like pouring gas, like pouring gasoline on his head or like, you know, backing out the car and stuff like that. But I do think like, it works as taking a very dark humor or black humor approach to something serious at a time where everything felt very dramatic for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And I think this is, you know, possibly an opportunity for a movie like this to have trigger warnings and leave yeah. it entirely in place. Like, you know, yeah, I, I actually, I never advocate really for these movies ever to be edited. Um, but I can, I can see a window for trigger warnings and, and stuff like that. Even if it's not within the movie, if it's, you know, hey, yeah. before I watch a movie, I have a dependable website. Like, um, this is where I see the value of that because I can see, as someone who was a suicidal teen, yeah, um, speak speaking personally from the yeah. inside lines, and who was broken up with uh, and had this exact same thing happen, mm-hmm. um, not the exact same thing, but, you know. Um, I yeah, you were the seeing. little brother,
0: so you didn't have a little brother who was like yeah. bring, bringing home ladies for New yeah. Year's party, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I I never learned to ski. Um, yeah, usually. So mistake. Huge mistake. Uh, Other than that, it's pretty much one to one. One to one. Yeah. Um, but as speaking as someone who was a suicidal teen, I think you're right. I think that speaking on the inside track of someone who was in that headspace and uh, did deal with that. D- that kind of like my world is over kind of depression and, and then found the other side of it uh, through new relationships and new experiences and figuring out more about myself and figuring out what I was capable of and stuff that we'll probably actually probably touch on or say anything episode a little bit more. Um, I uh, loved it in in, in that context because it also makes clear, it's kind of speaking to both, uh, you know, Uh, teens Mm -hmm. it's also speaking to people that used to be you know that this kind of kid and basically saying like isn't it fucking silly to have your whole beautiful life ahead of you and to do this and i understand why if you are a someone who has um a survivor of of this or if you are um you have a friend or family member or someone that you loved went through this why that could be Triggering in a different capacity. Yeah. Like maybe I'm too close to it and I'm like laughing at myself, but like I wouldn't be able to laugh at it if I was, if if I, if, you know, a friend of mine had, had yeah. actually committed suicide, you know, uh, a friend of mine had died by suicide to correct my, my language. Um, like, yeah. I understand why being outside of it and, 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 uh, it being, uh, you know, related to someone, um, who, who died that manner. And someone who actually, like, fought through those feelings and, like, went to therapy. Yeah. Why that's a different experience and a different level of triggering. Absolutely, like, this movie may not be for you.
0: To your point, Peter, it it does deserve all the trigger warnings because it is a movie that jokes about suicide. Again, I don't think it jokes from a cruel perspective. But if that is something that you don't want to see under any circumstances or you're close to it or you feel like um you may be um you don't want to take the risk or that's a trigger for you don't watch this movie because it is it's i think like it's it's a little bit complicated without being directly offensive in the way that you would think an 80s suicide comedy would be if that makes
1: yeah. sense yeah 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 absolutely um and that being said i feel like we uh get yeah, into what the movie actually is
0: let's get into what it you want to talk yeah.
1: about better oh Dot, dot, dot. Dot,
0: I know we've been a little more reticent to play licensed music, but if you didn't just hear EG Daly's uh, Better Off uh, Dead, go listen to it because great song.
1: Uh, she is, uh, usually when we're watching movies, Molly will, um, I'll say to Molly, I'll be like, do you recognize that person or whatever? Like I was, I, I pointed out Curtis Armstrong and she was like, no. And then I was like, it's the guy from the new girl. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, cause yeah. she hasn't seen Revenge of the Nerds. Or so you like, other you're
0: other like, movies. Hey, part of my movie watch activity with my wife who is watching these movies for the podcast and supporting me through it. I'm going to spend a good chunk of the movie mansplaining who all these people are. <laughs> No, we both like seeing people young and old. Hey, do you know who okay? that is? It's a normal activity. You know who that is? Well, I didn't know who one of the people are. Jesus Christ! Like, everyone I mean,
1: on the planet loves being like, "Oh my God, that's what that person looked like when they were younger." Yeah. Everyone on the planet, Aaron.
0: Okay, sorry, I, um, I, I anyways, didn't serve. Uh, I, I didn't do the work to survey everyone on the planet, so I apologize. <laughs> um, I didn't do my research, uh, but yes, I. Um,
1: uh, but yeah, Molly scooped me on this one, which was the EG Daily thing. And I was like, I was like, what do I know her from? And she was like, she's like, well, for one, that's definitely Tommy Pickles' voice. And I was yeah. like, what? And she's like, for two, it's Phoebe's friend in that episode where she tries to steal Smelly Cat. And I was like, yeah, that's why I got scooped. And oh, I got scooped but I mean, like, TV I, it's
0: Pee Wee's girlfriend.
1: Yeah. Do you think oh. that's why this movie is called Better Off da- Dot 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 because of Dottie?
0: Yep, I think so. Um, I also, like, I recently watched... Did you ever see Valley Girl? The original Valley Girl? 15 years ago. Okay. I, what, saw it for the, I
1: love the 80s come out.
0: Uh, I saw it for the first time like a year ago. Um, and uh, she sings in that too. And I'm like, oh my god, she really is like... But it's it's she has a part in that movie. <laughs> She's not just like shows up just to sing a song. But yeah, I mean, she was... Uh, she was an inspiring uh, pop singer at the time, too, a rock singer. So, she, but the song great, hopefully, yeah, the
1: song is great, and, yeah, is great. and she's uh, very like charismatic and magnetic yep. in that in that scene, um, which uh, is not necessarily true of voice actors.
0: <laughs> no, uh, yeah, highly recommend. If you didn't hear the song, go check out the song. It's great. She has a very
1: distinctive voice. It does she kind does. of sound like if if Tommy Pickles was a girl.
0: Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's got a little bit of Joan Jett, um, like. A lot of, like, uh, whoever the lead singer for Scandal was, like, it reminds me a little bit of that with a little more punk edge. Um, But, yeah, uh, really good. Uh, Yeah, so this movie, it's – one of the things I like about doing comedies on this show is it feels like because we don't want it to make it the Chris Farley show, it'll probably be briefer on the other end. But, yeah, this movie is about John Cusack's character who – and, again, there's – part of the charm in this, which we're just not going to be able to get into as we go through the plot – is there is kind of constant elements of surreality 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 uh, surreality throughout the it's movie. like
1: if reality was a gentleman
0: surreality <laughs> um yeah uh like so John Cusack's character starts and he like ha- his entire room is plastered with pictures of his girlfriend like everywhere in the room And even that like again it's almost an exaggerated of I'm looking at the the picture of my girlfriend she has like black and white images that were clearly taken by fashion photographers just as an entire wallpaper in his entire room he's you know he's thinking about her and talking about the ski thing they're gonna do and then it cuts to her and she is replacing his picture with uh, a new boy by the name of stalin (laughs) I don't know if that's a reference to anything specific. She hasn't
1: even started dating this guy, and she's already replacing a the Hollywood headshot of John Cusack. Of John Cusack,
0: she's with, like, "I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna break up with John Cusack, and I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell Stalin, I want to date him after the big ski triumph. Yeah, she's, but she's, she's right. She replaces him uh, very quickly. Um, he goes, uh, John Cusack goes, who plays, uh, he plays Lane discussion lane meyer lane goes to the ski team uh tryouts again this is very much seeing one crazy summer fitting with the idea of like the sports being very atypical to hollywood like it's not a baseball or t- football for you have a the ski team which has been parodied later on even though i think this is a joke to begin with so it's it's very much yeah kind of like,
1: this movie's kind of parodying stuff that would be
0: played straight for much of the 80s <laughs> Well, but like I remember, there's a South Park episode that parodies this movie, which feels like it's missing the point. Where like there's the big, you know, the Stan Dorsh in the ski instructor. I don't know if you were still watching. It's from like 2005 or so.
2: pizza, French fries.
0: Yeah, wow. but it, but it's like you're you're not making a joke about 80s conventions because this movie is making a joke about like you know it's a, it's a little bit like making an airplane or a naked gun joke like it was serious but anyways regardless yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and they it's do why,
1: that one it's it's why it's it's why Elvis the movie Elvis is so good is because it managed to overcome the fact that I had a block in the back of my mind for
0: yeah yeah it, it's doing a serious version of of, of walk hard. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's still pretty good it's great <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I, it, I like it, it
1: gets it squeezes past parody yeah by playing
0: it straight it's just spectacle uh but yeah so um he goes and curtis armstrong is his I, i'll tell you like i apologize for all the Cur- curtis armstrong heads i know he has my last name maya was convinced we were related mm-hmm. uh it's true. like l- legitimately like she's also like yeah and that guy neil like she did not i talked to her about that like last names can be shared she is adamant that they're not. So I I did not win that particular conversation. So I, according to my daughter, am related to Curtis Armstrong and all it, it Armstrongs. Might mean,
1: it might mean that you grew up – your ancestors were from the same county of Ireland yeah. like 300 years ago or something.
0: Yeah, I mean that's definitely true of Louis Armstrong and me.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure about the rest of them. Uh,
1: but I will say, like... That means you guys are from the same um, the same county, planet. New Orleans. <laughs> same planet of Earth. Yeah, um, you are from the same planet.
0: I don't like Curtis Armstrong in this movie. I think he's the only weak link. I think he's more annoying. Like, I know he's supposed to be annoying, um, but the key... He's supposed was, to
1: be feckless and give really useless advice. I think, just... this
0: thing, I think the thing about annoying characters, they work when they annoy the characters in the movie. And they work less when they annoy the people watching the movie.
1: I, I think it works well that there's at least one person in the world rooting for Lane. It's just very funny to have Curtis Armstrong, who is supposed to be uh have he's on his uh, like seven and a half year of, of uh high school. <laughs> and so, funny, funny joke. Uh he's on his seventh and a half year of, of high school. He's still in high school.
0: Yep. Um He knows high school, he's been there seven and a half years.
1: like all those jokes are really funny to me i love the fact that he basically just says pat useless advice to him
0: one just screams a lot and like snorts snow yeah and jello yeah it's um um,
1: yeah i don't know like he's not i don't know i think it's i think it's i think it's funny as a parody of the best friend type because they're always useless but to make them into not just a (laughs) slob but like incredibly useless Somebody who is like preternaturally a drug addict, but doesn't have any access to, to drugs. <laughs> yeah. It's like he's genetically a drug addict, but like, and his and his body is de- is is degrading at the rate of a drug addict.
0: Okay, but maybe you talk does, Maybe you talked me seen into cocaine. it a little bit. That's fine. You talked me into it a little bit. I I think the idea of a, the useless best friend who is only useless and never helpful is very funny as a concept. So,
1: um, not so like, even like accidentally. Let's go, a little helpful. trooper, like all yeah. that stuff, but it's coming out of like a 22 year old is very funny to <laughs>
0: me. So he goes to the race and he does pass the qualifying time, but Stalin hits the stopwatch like a couple seconds till after he passes it. And he's like, so, like again, in a very 80s, like for no reason has animosity towards this person. Um and how it, is this parodyable?
1: He's doing a parody I know, Rachel that's Hitchcock. what like
0: the fact that this was a South Park thing is just another reason to dislike South Park. But anyways, um yeah, he is like uh you're an idiot, you lost, you suck, why are you with this idiot? And uh and uh Beth breaks up with, with him. Uh, And he goes home and he's like, what am I supposed to do without Beth? And that's when he has that kind of first, like, life isn't worth living without Beth. And he starts what's going to be a running gag in the movie that when he's reached those points, he goes and tries different dramatic ways to kill himself. Sometimes he stops halfway through. Sometimes he is stopped. Sometimes he has a change of heart. Sometimes things go wrong. This is one where he... Puts a noose around his neck, goes into the garage, and then says, what am I doing? I have so much to live for. This is stupid to kill myself over a girl. And then his mom accidentally almost, like, while she's vacuuming, knocks him off. The other big dynamic that's happening a lot in this 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 movie, which I think <coughs> the movie actually does a really good job of, is he is really having trouble connecting to his parents. Um, He doesn't connect with them at all. And the way they, they show this is they have a mom who's kind of like her interests are separate she she literally like i said will vacuum their kid through a noose and not notice she's she's kind of fo- one of the running gags is that she f- she's focusing on her right now which is and like her is like trying to find out who she is cuz her kids are getting older and so she's doing like horrible cooking and some of the other stuff but she's she's kind of removed from the daily parenting um Which, again, very 80s idea, like that kind of latchkey kid with little supervision um, from their parents. And the dad is trying to relate. Anytime he talks – and I think this is a very genius part of the script – he is impossible to understand. He speaks almost in like florid 80s Shakespearean language where he overcomps – it's like someone took any sentence and replaced every word in each sentence – with the most complicated, least used word they could find in a thesaurus. Like yeah. and he and it's and so it's very hard for him to understand. So he says these things and Lane just kinda nods and move on moves on with life. So his dad is constantly trying to relate to him. He is basically not understandable to Lane literally, as opposed to the figuratively that the parents don't relate to their their parents, and then finally has one conversation in a very funny scene later on where he kinda gets through or asks something. It's not something that Lane wants to do, he's not listening to his kid or anything like that. That's uh but he has all of these textbooks over a table and is like trying to pull out slang to again literally speak the language of his child so he can basically say, You're you're wallowing with this breakup and you need to go out with someone.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of pointing it. And what's funny about the what's what's funny about that interaction with the parents is that there's no redemptive arc where the parents like hug their kid at the end. And it's like, I now I understand. Like I should have just talked to you like you were one of my friends the whole time. Like there's no scene like that at all. No. Um, at the end of the movie, uh, his little brother
0: goes to the moon or whatever. <laughs> like, There's no. There's and they're annoyed like about that. the garage doors. Yeah, he has it's a, a little, little brother
1: Man or Heather's kind of thing. Where yeah. like. The, why why, why would you reconnect with these people? these are these are space aliens that happen to give birth,
0: to yeah, them. yeah, that's the right. They're not bad people, but they literally don't even speak the same language you have, right? Yeah. And he has a younger brother who's nine who basically he is left on to his own devices at all times and literally. he literally and he has spent he has no friends and he is basically spending his time doing like, Funny 80s gadgets that starts with a laser and, as you noted, ends with him taking a rocket ship um, to the moon. And that's a little bit of, like, something that Lane connects with later on. Like, where Lane's problem is that he gives up and doesn't try. Right, that which is very common, like high school teenager thing, and he does relate to my brother's building a spaceship out of a vacuum party found around the house, and I don't even have the courage to go do a ski race. Like he does connect how, as um as Monique starts saying, like you are a coward who doesn't take any chances and gives up and wallows in. in in Depression, he does relate to, like, how different he is from his brother. But, again, in the same way that, like, he Lane can't relate to his parents, he can't really relate to his brother either. So there's a couple times where he stops by to see what's going on, but his brother doesn't say two words for him, and he gives up very quickly with that, too. There's, like, a – you know, there's – there's that kind of separation when, when a family is not connected from the, you know, from the top, it's just not connected. And so these are just essentially like four individual beings who share the same space without having any, like anything in common or anything to connect with.
1: They share a suburban house that uh, somehow uh, reassembles itself on occasion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to note here. So Savage uh, Steve, um, as I'll refer to him, um apparently parts of this are like autobiographical Mm -hmm. um and apparently the uh tying a electrical cord to a pipe in the garage and trying to hang yourself thing was something he actually tried when he was in high school yeah and uh he was standing on a garbage can garbage can was plastic so it just kind of caved in Mm -hmm. and then as he was hanging on the pipe the pipe broke and spilled water and so he was just kind of hanging out in the bucket as water was filling with it and his mom came in the room and yelled at him about uh breaking a pipe yeah like she didn't it didn't click with her that like he was trying to kill himself and she should be very concerned she he was just like that was that was my one attempt at suicide because i got somebody broke up with me um and in interviews he's talked about like how like oh i got in touch with that that girl years later and basically and she was like i feel so bad and he was like i'm a director now and i'm like i don't it doesn't matter anymore i made a joke out of it like i made a movie about i'm clearly fine um and uh he, uh, apparently the, like, the being hounded for $2 was something that, like, actually used to happen in Like, the paper boy in his neighborhood was very aggressive about being paid. Like, there's just, like, little details in here that are apparently just... They do feel very
0: specific, and obviously they're blown up, but they do seem like... Again, that's why the, the surreality works, right? It's It's somewhat based in our reality, and it's just kind of blown up to a little bit more fantastical than it would be in real life without being like fantasy. Um, the other kind of key figures in here, you mentioned the paperboy. there's a running gag that the paperboy is violent and aggressive and purposely tries to break garage door windows uh, to the chagrin of Lane's father. But that also he is trying to collect the $2 he's owed for the papers to more and more extreme heights. One of the kind of funny gross point blank connections that is literal is that, they made the first person that John Cusack assassinates in that movie, the biker, um, look like the paper boy. <laughs> like, have oh, that's funny. a little similar to kind of give the – like, he's a courier in that movie to kind of give the kind of connection that um, he's killing the paper boy from the first – from the – from not the first movie, but from, from Better Off Dead. You'll recognize it when you see it. I, I watched the first half tonight, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that is very clear. That's <laughs> um But, uh, yeah, and then the other kind of main figures here, when we talk a little bit about Dan Schneider, is his neighbor, Ricky, Ricky's mom, and their uh, exchange student they have living with them from France, Monique. Now, Monique eventually becomes the love interest of Lane. She is because, and we'll talk about this, Ricky is essentially, like, a, a kind of an aggressive sexual rapist or, like, you know, constantly, like... And and Ricky's mom is essentially like, these two are going to fall in love and like in a very like toxic, uncomfortable household, which is not unremarked about throughout the movie. She pretends that she can't speak English. And as she says to try to get him to leave her alone, which which didn't work. It's not working. Yeah, it's not working. But they even though she sees him do a few goofy things laying across the street and laugh. They don't really start forming any sort of connection or friendship till more than halfway through the movie. And they start out as friends having a good time. And there's a very specific scene where Lane is like, Oh, I just had a really good time with this person through these crazy, wacky adventures. And I didn't think about Beth once. And like, I do think for a kind of like manic pixie dream girl, like literally French exchange student next door. Like, I'm not saying she is necessarily a well-developed character, but I do like the way that there's not, like, in so many of these movies, he would be broken up, they would see each other across the street, and one of them would pursue them immediately. Like, that would be the thrust of the movie. And this movie is about slowly realizing that there might be other people out there that you have more fun with than than um, dwelling on a previous relationship that of a person that ultimately you didn't really even have – That much of a good time with and didn't really like you for who you are. So that I I like the way they approach that relationship from a time. It's not thrust upon you. It's it doesn't happen till halfway through the movie. And it's kind of a slow build to literally just like a a cute date and a kiss uh, and then a trip to Dodger Stadium at the end. But Ricky, as you pointed out to me that I missed, is played by noted, terrible real life person Dan Schneider.
1: So I had an interesting experience where I was reading an article. I went that's amazing. That's Dan Schneider because I knew Dan Schneider as a Nickelodeon figure who was a producer and an actor and stuff and I had this terrible experience where I was like that's so cool. Good for good for the Ricky. Good for Dan Schneider. He got to go on. He started a production company. He like acted and all these, like, you know, Nickelodeon, uh, Nickelodeon projects, he got- Yeah, to he read, like
0: iCar like, all the most popular Nickelodeon shows from, like- Yeah,
1: he got to produce all these shows, that's amazing, good for him, oh, 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 the whole time he was a sex pest- yeah. no this isn't a good story like i went from being like that's so oh cool, wait so you didn't to, like, know
0: that those were the until like
1: i, I mean like it's not i didn't again. connect i knew that there was a i knew that there was a sex pest at nickelodeon but like i'm well, there's a, a, little, a couple
0: too because the ren and stimpy guys it's like there's a few of uh, those, like... i
1: knew about kirk falusi but okay. he's like he's almost two generations yeah. behind uh dan schneider almost yeah uh, two generations behind dan schneider but like my point is that like I knew there was a sex pass Nickelodeon. I am a lit. I'm too old for iCarly and some yeah. Of I, those shows. Obviously, I
0: am too. I never watched any of those shows.
1: Yeah, but the shows that people love and they make memes about, like I'm, I'm a, a little too old for the Dan Schneider era. I just know that they're the, the shows that people love and make memes about. Yeah. I am, I am young enough to have watched spongebob obsessively when i was a kid so like i love that spongebob memes are a thing but i so i i was in the spongebob i I mean i miss i miss spongebob
0: yeah i actually miss like i've watched spongebob with my kids because it's obviously still on and um i like it i can see why kids loved it but i I, like I, i think i was in my first year of college when that was like a it was in its second year like there were some kids in college who were like had caught it and were like this is really good but it was I, I miss SpongeBob,
1: but in the way that there's, but in the way that there, I yeah, there's these great TV shows being made or whatever. These TV shows that kids are very attached to, right? In this era, and I, and there's this guy who's sort of a public figure. He has sort of this goofy, man, like man boy face. Yeah, he, he sometimes shows his face. Sometimes he's behind the scenes. Whatever. He's like a he's a big powerhouse producer. Like, yeah, and creator. In it. Like, or, yeah, he's a writer, producer, creator. He he's a performer. He it, He's like a well, kind of like you know, he he's a well, uh, popularized, uh, yeah. popularized uh, writer, um, for somebody that writes shows for Nickelodeon, right? Like, who wrote the Fairly Odd Parents? I don't yeah. know. He apparently was a sex pest the entire time. Well, and, and
0: terrible, yeah. Like, so I actually, funny, and, yeah. So I remember hearing the news when I, when it came out too. Which I think happened actually a while ago. Like, he was working on shows and got fired from them, like, while he was still making specific shows. Five years
1: ago, it seems like, is when yeah. everything sort of crashed.
0: But I, like, so I remember reading the news at the time, but, like, not having any connection to, like, oh, Salmon Cat. Uh, or whatever it is. Like, I don't know what Salmon Cat is. I don't know who these people are. Ariana Grande, <laughs> you know star of this show uh i've come to know some of those shows because my kids will watch them on like paramount plus or netflix or stuff like that um but i also last year i read jeanette mccurdy's uh autobiography um i'm glad my mom died which is a great autobiography it also just really shows like the the idea like the level of kind of like overlooked abuse in the child actor like um you know i think something that we associate with so much of the 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 trauma that is occurring to child actors as like a remnant of the 80s and 90s specifically because we saw all those e true hollywood stories and we were like man look how bad they used to have it before they had lawyers and funds to keep their money and stuff like that and like that's also just missing that like what kind of parents force their kids because outside of the realm of their choice to be actors, who are the people that are running these shows and working with kids all day. And it's like, it's really good. It's a, it's a relatively short read, but if you, if you're up for it, it is a, it's a heavy book, but I, I read it last year and I, I, I thought it was great. Um, but she does not refer to him by name in that book because the creator, the, uh, the creator. Yep. Um, and while there's no like sexual allegations against her specifically, There's a constant stream of manipulation and abuse like verbal abuse and other things like around weight and around like lying to them and like separating like trying to make certain people in the show like each other less or more and stuff like like it's just some serious like sick shit of like someone wielding a lot of power around kids that also no one else on the show on all these shows everyone knew he was a tyrant and a monster. But, like, he had all the power. So, like, you don't have the makeup person who's speaking out because the makeup person will just get fired. So there's all this, like, abuse that is happening, even outside of the sex pest stuff, which is obviously the most extreme, you know, the, the worst form of that. But um, all these people who are, like, all these adults turning a blind eye to protect their careers in Hollywood, too. So, like, it, like it's hard not to read that book and just be like, fuck, child – Child actors should just be banned, period. Like, it should be like fucking, you know, a 16-year-old can't join the NBA. Like, you, like, just no. No more. It's fine. We just won't tell those stories or whatever else. Like, it's got to be better than, than this. is what we need. This. We
1: need a, uh, Megan technology, uh, yeah. M3gan te- technology to take uh, several steps forward um, so that we don't have to put actual children in danger. We just have um, Megan's.
0: Yeah. So yeah. So that's how I, I I learned a lot about him from that perspective. And she comments that she was not aware of any of the um, sexual allegations, like directly, but obviously heard about him secondhand the way a lot of people did as well. But.
1: And it sounds like you know some of that stuff wasn't necessarily that he was getting off to it. It's just, it's that he was being um, emotionally abusive about people's bodies and weight, yeah. and that like he he wanted to be there for costume changes and like and stuff like that which might be sexual in nature but it might just be like him being like you need to look good for the camera in a way that's very fucking creepy when you're talking about it like a 10 year old yeah Um, regardless a
0: huge fuck that guy and he plays a detestable character in this movie so thankfully if you're like oh fuck this terrible person's in this movie you're gonna fucking hate him in this movie my daughter hated him hate hate capital H hated
2: him
1: which okay so in the movie they want you to not like Ricky for obvious reasons right and then at the end of the movie they give Ricky I kind of want to be done talking about Ricky to be honest Yeah. Um, they, they they give uh they give Ricky a nerdy girlfriend similar to in um uh Moonraker they yeah. give Jaws a girlfriend
0: um I think a it's girlfriend. a joke my daughter actually said something very funny because she, I think, assumed it was the person with braces who went on the date with Lane halfway through the movie. And she goes, oh, I know who this is. And then it panned up to someone we've never seen before. And she <laughs> goes, oh, I guess I have no idea who this is. Which <laughs> Separating it from the, the whether he deserves a happy ending with a girl more his speed, I think that's – the like, I do think that is the joke. Like – These movies did tend to give, like, Moonraker's a hilarious example. These, like, terrible, creepy bad guys. Like, Jaws is a more explicit bad guy. Like, these weird, like, oh, here's someone who looks like a weirdo like you. I guess let's hook them up. Because this person has no, like, she's not in the movie before this moment. And she just grabs his hand and they leave together. And I think that's a joke. I do think it's a a joke.
1: Yeah, it's I I think I think that it, it's a joke, but it's supposed to be a nice way to end the movie because when they return, they almost never return to like uh, the guy who got rejected. They return to him at the end, and they're like, "Well, it's not really fair for this movie to be about Lane getting dumped, and then Lane stole this guy's girl, which is not really how." Well, he, I mean,
0: but he, that girl literally picks him up after he snow jousts. Like, he it's not like they return to him. It's like Lane defeats him in a in a fight. Yeah. And then this girl just picks him out of the snow and they walk together arm in arm into the snow sunset while his mom screams at him to come back. Like Yeah. It's it's a. I think it's a joke.
1: It's it is it is a joke. It's supposed to be silly. But yeah, I think we can be done talking uh briefly about about uh Dan Dan Schneider, though um I it is interesting that Sa- Savage Steve and Dan Schneider both ended up at Nickelodeon. It's all paramount, obviously, but
0: one of the other kind of funny things or the which i don't quite get because beth is essentially dating stalin for the movie but one of the kind of funny things that happens is that everyone asks uh, lane again that injury to insult everyone's moved on no one cares about him again i think this is that hyper reality ask lane if they if, if beth is single can they do you mind if they ask him out, and the funniest one, while also being the one that, outside of a joke, is a really gross predator thing, is Vincent Chevelly. Who <laughs> there, there's a joke here that also like kind of works, where in in these like again that seems to be directly referencing these types of movies where the kids don't pay attention and don't like school. These mm-hmm. kids are enraptured attention at everything the teacher is saying about math. They moan when class is over they cheer when they find out that they have to read 80 pages of the book that night like everyone is in rapturous applause at the math teacher and what he's teaching and the joke is that lane is so distracted that he doesn't care about math that day which is a huge sign that something's off because everyone loves the math but yeah dorf's caddy from uh are you familiar with uh, dorf on golf peter uh, you know
1: I, I I've perused uh Dorf, Dorf's uh educational materials.
0: Yeah. He 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 was very limited in his education material. He had like five things he taught you. Fishing, I think, a couple times he taught you about golf, likely something else. He now, this if you've only seen the cover, this may shock you. Dwarf is played like there's not a real Dorf. It's played by this guy named Tim Conway. Um what? The singer, uh, I think that's Conway Twitty. Um, yeah. But but here's the thing: what Tim Conway is doing, theoretically, yeah, he has any- a
1: Convoy though,
0: anyone could do this, is what I'm saying. Like you think, oh, this is something only Tim Conway could be a dwarf. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying that's not true because what Tim Conway's doing from a method acting perspective is he is the joke is that he is a he's a he's short. Which is a hilarious joke. You okay. Know, this is before the concept of, like, we praise our short kings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know I, what? Let, let him cook. He...
0: <laughs> <laughs> so he is... I don't know how short or tall he is in real life. But in the At Dorf... one knee to foot length. Well, on. that's the thing. You, you must have looked it up. Because <laughs> Dorf, as a character, is shorter than Tim Conway. Because... Get this. He is not standing upright like humans evolved hundreds of thousands of years ago by my estimation. Um, He's just on his knees and you're like, well, that would look stupid. You just would know he's kneeling around and playing golf. It's a bad way to play golf or go fishing or all the other educational things that Dorf teaches. How he confuses the mind in this – I would say like the greatest optical (laughs) illusion of all time. Mm -hmm. He puts shoes on his knees.
2: So So he looks –
0: like he has a kind of elephant. My knees trunks. don't have
1: feet on him, though. Was he born with some sort of malady?
0: No. Like I said, he is just. I mean, again, theoretically, anyone could do this. Only Tim mm-hmm. Conway thought of it, and so he's a short man. Vincent Chiavelli who plays his caddy in all of the same educational videos. I don't know. He's probably, he's probably not caddying in the fishing ones, but he's there. He, he exists in there. Um, he, pr- Vince-
1: he probably, you, you know, if he did. Um, Probably got some messages mixed up. He thought they were. I mean, I'm sure,
0: I, like a hundred percent, they do that joke. I haven't even seen it, but I guarantee that he brings like a fucking golf clubs to the fishing, and I'm sure that makes Dwarf uh, quite upset. But so Vincent Chavelli a tall guy, He's like six five. That's already like a good comic dynamic. You got a tall guy, you got a short guy. When you make Tim Conway <laughs> do entire films on his knees <laughs> with little shoes on. Now Vincent Ciavelli looks like a Frankenstonian monster of a tall man. And I'll tell you, the laughs do not stop for all 23 minutes of those educational films.
1: I just hope that I'm able to be educated about golf in between all the laughs.
0: I mean, it's going to be tough. you got to watch it a few times. you got to make sure the jokes stop being funny. And so, like, you can sit in and just really get the golf techniques. Is there um, a
1: way that I can get a transcript of the material so that I can use a permanent marker and black out all the jokes?
0: Sure. For just $5.99 and two self-addressed stamped envelopes, you can get a transcript of Dwarf on Golf. Hmm. It's funny that they made you like, you already had to pay X amount of money for shipping, but like you also, hey, send a self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> Literally do all the work for us, please. <laughs> um, yeah, so Vincent Ciavelli's in this. There's no dwarf that I could tell. I, I rewound it a few times in case it was like an Easter egg. But as far as I can tell, How do you Tim know Con- he's not
1: like below frame?
0: I mean, I don't. I That's mean, and the, the director was savage. Know where he is.
1: The director was
0: a savage man. He may have included that. But as far as I could tell, there was no dwarf On golf, on math. But yeah, everyone keeps asking out Beth. And she accepts the dates, but also goes out with Stalin. Meanwhile, Stalin... In his quintessential '80s movie villain role, every time he sees this guy who he took his girlfriend, he's just an asshole to him for no reason. To the point that Beth starts getting seemingly annoyed that my new blonde boyfriend is just constantly be like, "You suck," which again, that is the joke. It's also a joke that South Park thinks it's parroting by doing this D and Thing, but that's essentially what's happening in this movie he, he calls him oscar meyer wiener
1: um we didn't talk about beth as an actor um yeah. apparently is six years older than john cusack robbing the cradle um played do you think by still true now? Al- though what
0: do you think it's true now
1: oh i can only confirm their ages now um okay one is born in 1960 and and one is born in 1966 Okay. Do you think
0: kinda of, you, you're kind of implying it was always true then, based on? Yeah, going I, exactly I wonder if I,
1: I use the Wayback Machine, uh, I can check it out. Yeah. So Amanda I, Wiss, Amanda Weiss, um, yeah. plays Beth, and uh, but you know her from Shockma.
0: She's in Nightmare on Elm Street.
2: Mm,
1: yeah, but I, I'd rather credit her for Shockma.
0: I, I have not seen Shockma. <laughs> I haven't either. You also probably don't know who played Monique because she is. Well, I guess she was in the, the Last American Virgin, and Barry I Tess- assume
1: she's. I, I assume she's the girlfriend in uh, Before Sunrise and Before Sunset,
0: and. Yep, she's off screen.
1: No, she's she's uh, Ethan Hawke's girlfriend in that in those movies, right? The the French girl that he meets in those movies.
0: I don't. Because there's only one French girl, like I'm not, I'm not quite sure what you're doing as a bit, and I need you to explain it. Still. Oh,
1: sorry. She's actually in, uh, she's actually in the movie uh, Jenny Dealman, um, Jean Dealman. She plays Jean Dealman. Uh, the joke is that she's not actually French. No, she's not French.
0: She doesn't talk for most. She's Not
1: of Julia Bono. She's not any of these. Any of these. Yeah. People. She
0: doesn't. She does not talk for most of the movie. Uh, yeah, by uh, design. Then when she does
1: yeah she's yeah. speaking international language silence of love silence
0: <laughs> yeah so eventually though they go through this and they kind of start hanging out and i do like that there's this thread of like lane starts having fun again like he's not having fun when the he's having like races with his some some neighborhood other kids that speak like they're howard cassell one speaks like they're Howard Cassell. So.
1: I don't get the joke. It's one of the only jokes in this movie that I think has aged, uh, like, cheese. It hasn't aged well. Mozzarella
0: cheese. I like that it's not racist. It is too weird to be racist. I mean, it's not, though, right? Like, you have you have two Asian characters, and no one makes any comments about, and, like, there's no, like, weird 80s Asian accents or something like that. It's just one who's talking like Howard Cassell and one who likes to race and like Yeah. The only, you know
1: what, the only thing that's a little weird is that like the idea that neither of them or that one just didn't learn English and then one learned English by watching T V, like that is a little weird, but like it it's too it's too bizarre to be pointedly racist, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it's um it's um it's just sort of a strange little joke where no matter no matter how How much these, uh, these how no matter how these races go, Lane always ends up driving into the same guy's truck over and over again. Yeah, who ends up
0: being his boss at the Hog Heaven place or whatever. Yeah, um, but uh, I also think this is the origin of the gag. I could not find an earlier example. Um, the music budget for this movie must have been very high because they use a lot of um licensed songs. And again, I I guess it would be high. Original songs,
1: too. Multiple original songs.
0: Yeah, it would definitely be high in 2023. I mean, this is at a time when, like, Beastie Boys were, like, paying five cents to use Beatles samples in Paul's Boutique. So, like, who knows how much the Soundtracks cost. But I think this is the first example of a joke that's happened many, many times since of someone turning on the radio after a breakup and just flipping station after station and hearing breakup songs.
1: Yeah, there's Paul Simon, there's Frank Sinatra, yeah. like it's it's very it's very funny. Till Til he till he like, throws
2: the the he throws the,
1: the thing. I mean, that's one of the good absurd absurdist jokes. Um I wanna kinda just like as we're we're chugging along, I don't really think it's worth I mean let's run, I'll, I'll run through the pot really quickly. Lane falls uh, in love with Monique. Yeah, yeah. At the end. Um and then She encourages Lane, him Lane. to do
0: one more ski race to become the captain if he goes down this K twelve, which is like this terrible mountain that he's been training for but only stalin has ever done before and that's why he's the captain of the team and at some point their bickering turns into hey on sunday i'm gonna take you down k-12 and he keeps thinking i need to flee the country i need to kill myself i need to get out of it
1: yeah yeah and at the end of the movie um he uh is practicing with monique one of his uh skis gets broken and he uh starts racing because the paper boy has finally caught up with him and is chasing him on a ski bike it's a you bike put skis, with skis on his bike yep but, but he's also got ski shoes on his shoes so he's skiing and biking at the same time in a way i mean and it's very funny. you're laughing to look at, at it. you're laughing bike. at it, but it's
0: very practical if you need to ski down on your paper bike
1: <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like you already have skis like you're looking at this absurd contraption it's just still it's funnier in every every passing shot especially because you know some stuntman is actually driving this fucking thing down the mountain
0: well also um, when he when he takes the wrong turn goes down to the cliff he falls for an enormously amount of time down a cliff and my daughter was like oh he's dead And, then I, he, I, and
1: I was then, like oh this movie killed a kid
0: yeah and then the next scene he gets up out of the snow and again my uh, my daughter, realizing, oh, this was was a good movie for She goes, oh, the joke is that he fell for so long, and he's fine. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you get this. Like, yeah. clearly I got That's a cool. lot of movies. Yeah, you get this.
1: The shot of just Lane going down the hill with one boot, or one ski on, is yep. like, you know, like, it's, it's, it's,
0: it's the thing. Uh, and the- well, I actually think the skiing scenes, like, sometimes, like, in these comedy movies, I think, um, I always think of this as such a specific example, but like, So many of these, like, movies that have some sort of exciting sports thing are shot so poorly that even in the moment, it's hard to get through it. Like, this was a real problem for, like, non-baseball sports movies in the 90s aimed at kids. Like, if you were watching, like, uh, The Big Green or or Little Giants or something like that, like, the football and the soccer scenes were so anemic that it was, like – Oh, I understand. I'm supposed to care about what's happening, but it's like it's shot so poorly. There's nothing exciting. The ski scenes in this are shot really well. Like that they, when they're like you know they have the the perspective shot of someone barrowing down a mountain. Like the the scenery, the cinematography is really good. Like I do think even though the racing is like clearly predetermined, we know Lane's gonna win, and it's a silly race to begin with because it's against this K12 mountain with a guy with one ski being chased by a paper boy with a ski bike. Like, it still is an excitingly shot race, and I think it does that really well. And, and th- this is when the movie, like, for a little little bit, kind
1: of uh, gets out of the parody zone, because he gets down the mountain, and then Beth immediately embraces him the way that she would in the serious version of this. And uh, Monique gets, like, kind of car- carted off. Um, Ricky, I guess in the serious yeah.
0: version, she would just be walking away um yeah, ricky went um, like a her and lane has to snow fight for
1: him yeah yeah and uh then uh, her dream because she's obsessed with baseball is to go to dodger stadium in new york this movie's not that fun to like just kind of walk through the plot um i kind of want to just talk about don't they go to Do-
0: the dodgers weren't still in brooklyn in 1986 were they i thought they were until like the late 80s 1957
1: oh gotcha gotcha
0: yeah yeah, because th- oh, so they, they, the, they showed they showed the ocean and to... stuff. I think they went to L.A.
1: Got it. I'm not a not a baseball head. Um, but yeah, but you're an
0: way. L.A. head. <laughs> you're and so the... close, Peter. You don't recognize your old stomping ground.
1: Yeah, I I try to remember uh, every piece of trivia about L.A. that I learn. You know, like when S- restaurants opened. <laughs> Ask me when the L.A. Kings were were created as a team.
0: When were the short L.A. Kings created as a team? <laughs>
1: yeah whatever um let's talk about let's talk about silly stuff and kind of wrap up uh there's there's uh, i want to talk about some things that like genuinely like make me like like laugh like hardcore in this movie the one bit that i could not stop laughing at for like a full minute was okay so the dad gets for christmas he gets this aardvark coat (laughs) yeah and at first, you're like, "Oh, it's a silly coat." The mom is just kind of loopy and doesn't know what a good present is, and the aardvark hat goes on, and you're like, "Yeah, it's kind of silly. Whatever." They go outside.
0: Well, he goes, "Everyone's gonna be wearing these," and she's everyone, like, "Yeah, everyone, everyone's gonna be wearing
1: yeah. these." And she says, "Yeah, that's gonna be the new, the new hip thing." and you know that she's so loopy and out of it, like she clearly like misread something in a magazine. They go, uh, they go out in the driveway. And Lane, who's been trying to kill himself By gassing himself in the car Um uh, He backs out of the driveway Um, the car, you know Powers down the driveway And, uh, the neighbor steps out From behind the bushes to investigate the noise And the neighbor's wearing the artwork (laughs) Jacket Yeah, (laughs) That is like such The fact that they even made two of those things I know, it's it's such a good
0: Unnecessary gag Like that's I love any time a movie's like and this is what Simpsons was so good at, right? Like we have our joke, the joke is good, we're gonna do another joke on top of that. And this is that. This is the the mom giving him a weird coat with an ardvar cat that's uncomfortable, and then the sun going out, you know, to show the the windows are fixed in the garage right before the sun completely uh destroys the entire garage door. Only to look over at the neighbor who's been skeptical, of, like, has the normal, typical 80s neighbor who's like, what the fuck is going on over here? Mm. And he is wearing the same art. Like, it's a great. It is it is a hat on top of a ardvar cat, and
2: it works fantastically. It's so funny.
1: Um, that was one joke that made me, like, absolutely, like, cackle laughing um, for, like, a full minute in a way that, like, I, I, did, I didn't
0: know that this movie had in me. I think, like, the, the, the hardest I laughed, because it's such a good jump cut. Is the uh, mom blowing up cut to Lane driving Ricky to school saying, sorry, mom blew up. <laughs> like, it's just a perfect editing timing gag that is so, you know, it's so funny because it's like we see her drink the gasoline. We see her light the cigarette. We see literally their kitchen window explode in a fiery blaze. And you think they're going to walk it back a little because obviously, <laughs> you know, she didn't blow up. They're not killing her at the dinner table in this movie to only – so you have like the perceptions of we're just going to move on like a lot of this movie has done and not have any consequences for the exaggerated version that we just saw. And instead, they immediately acknowledge it in the most explicit terms, (laughs) solidifying that, yes, she did just blow up at the kitchen table. It's such a funny joke. It's so good.
1: It's it's so good. There's stuff in this movie that I don't necessarily think is like particularly funny, but it like makes me smile. Like I don't think anything in the "every everybody wants some" sequence is funny. Um, so what's happening here is Lane's working at the pig hut. Oh yeah, I, I
0: I don't like that sequence either.
1: Um, I, the sequence the sequence does make me laugh though, because like for one, they license a Rad Van Halen song. I like the Compared? cutback.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's, when he that's... is like. Absent-mindedly destroyed like once again the same guy who keeps crashing into his car. He hasn't like got off track and not made the hamburgers. He has fucking destroyed the entire kitchen while he's been. And in everything is smoking and on fire. Smoking on fire. Things are destroyed. Like, like it is so over the top. I think that's a funny ending to it. But I agree. Like the hamburger claymation is. But,
1: uh, apparently the, the, the lead up to the hamburger claymation thing it does make me smile because you get to see little John Cusack doing, being a silly little guy and he's doing like a Frankenstein parody. Yeah. And he does this like exaggerated, like laugh. Um, and it really like, I think it really like shows off the like, John Cusack needs to be sillier. Like he doesn't do a lot of movies where he does like outright silliness. And, and when this movie came out, so, okay. He was he was in the middle of production or had just started the production of One Crazy Summer. Um, by the time this movie was like coming out, and they screened this movie apparently on set, or you know, while they were in production. And John apparently like walked out 10 or 20 minutes in and uh showed up to set pissed off at uh Savage Steve uh the next morning. And he was apparently just didn't like this movie for like decades. And he basically, I think. Basically the idea is that like he thought he looked like a like a silly clown. Yeah. And that the movie he didn't think the movie was fun. He thought it was the stupidest movie he'd ever seen. And uh now in interviews he'll be like, you know, I'm sorry, I made people feel that way. I it's just, you know, I at the time that wasn't I, I just wanted to move on to the next thing and, and this movie was kind of, you know, not what I wanted at the time. But I'm really glad that, you know, it's aging well and that people like seeing me in it like he's kind of become magnanimous about it later but it sounds like for years him and uh, savage steve d- had some animosity because uh john cusack thought this movie sucked and then of course you know one crazy summer did underperformed again and it's like why why would you maintain your relationship
0: yeah well and i also like it's funny though too because i do think that this is and we're going to talk about this more next week I do think this is of a piece with gross point blank both by like tonally the way they handle the romance, the kind of very serious murder topic being really downplayed in the specific dark humor perspective and just kind of there's a lot of silliness in that movie around like you know his house being uh replaced with a with a gas station and it's not surreal. Quite in the same way it is, but it is a heightened reality of like, you know, a, a huge man, hitman descending on a little town in Michigan over, or suburb of Detroit in Michigan over a, over a high school reunion and stuff like that. So it's and obviously John Cusack had a big part in the writing and creation of Gross Point Blank. So I, even though I'm glad he kind of came around at least acknowledging there's a cult for this movie. I agree that this and One Crazy Summer, like, he kept a lot of the pining puppy dog hurt energy while really removing more of the silliness. And I, again, I think it's going to be interesting to talk about Gross Point Blank next week in relation to this movie because they do feel of a piece. I think you could, like, obviously I'm I'm not trying to do, like, a cracked list, like, secret sequels. But, like, I mean, if if this was, if Gross Point Blank was a sequel to Better Off Dead and this was, Lane was the character instead of Martin Blank, like, it actually fits really well. It, there's such a similarity of tone that, uh A, I'm excited to talk about Gross Point Blank, but also, like, I'm kind of surprised that he kind of um denounced this a little bit just because it's not so outside the realm of of what he ended up doing himself on purpose later on. But. We'll get to that next week. Peter, any final thoughts on better off dead before we
1: wrap? Um, no, I mean, we sometimes have trouble talking about comedy on the show because just saying, Hey, that moment is really funny. Um, is, is a little bit tough. I'm glad we were able to kind of talk about the production history because it does kind of have some interesting production background details. Um, yeah, this is a movie that I've been able to, it's, it's helped me bridge this sort of feeling that I had Which is that um, comedy movies got really bad in the 80s. (laughs) Yeah. And that there were some good ones. But, like, I watched so, so many bad 80s comedies on Comedy Central growing up that, like, it kind of soured that well a little bit for me. Yeah. And I I, I thought that, um, like, there was this kind of uh, trough between, like, the great, like, you know, Albert Brooks and Woody Allen kind of era of 70s comedy and the parodies that came before it in the '60s, going into the '70s, and then like when you get to the '90s, and like comedy kind of could reinvent itself in like the Kevin Smith era, almost like comedy could uh, could could find itself a little bit more. Like I kind of generalized that the '80s was just kind of full of um, these shitty sexist party comedies, um, yeah, as they downgraded to making just kind of bad frat movies. And Better Off Dead is one of those movies where I was like, oh, wait, but um, there are movies that have, like, my, that feel like they were actually made for me and my sensibilities. And they're yeah. Not, they're not these, like, toxic little monsters that occasionally crack a good joke. Yeah. Um, I mean,
0: there's definitely a lot of those, but it's funny you mentioned that because I, I do think Cusack was really good at that. Like, the, uh, Roger Ebert's three and a half star rating of The Sure Thing notes it as having a premise like porky's guy falls in love with a pinup girl has a chance to meet her and travels cross country to to have a date or a night with her and ends up being in a a sweet and charming non-sex comedy sex comedy and so like that is a little bit of the john cusack charm like he doesn't work with like skeeviness i think in in that way like he definitely hurts with some like emotional trauma later on. We'll talk about with that with high fidelity, but he's not a he's not a like I stole someone's underwear type guy. And he wouldn't be good no. playing that.
1: No, and, and part of that is his relatability, his everyday charm. Um that we'll continue to talk about the rest of them.
0: Yeah. Alright. Well with that, Peter, you owe me two bucks.
1: Two dollars. You- um, I don't have two dollars right now. I you know, my dad's my dad usually handles Twenty
0: library. newspapers! Two dollars. <laughs> Great deal on newspapers cents, if you can get 20. it, by the way. <laughs> Good night. Good night.
1: for listening to We Love to Watch
2: Mmm. <laughs> Mwah. <laughs>